This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. This is why the founding fathers, especially George Washington, was very, very concerned about the rise of political parties because individuals will sacrifice their commitment to the common good, their commitment to sort of moral conviction and character for party loyalty. Loyalty is a very good virtue, but it can also be a very dangerous one. You are listening to Quick to Listen. I'm Morgan Lee. I'm an assistant editor for Christianity Today. And today on our show, we will be talking about whether character matters for our leaders. Joining me today is none other than Amy Jackson. We have a guest host for today. Amy, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Amy, what is your title? And what do you do for CT here? Yeah, I'm managing editor of three of our resource brands, smallgroups.com, christianbiblestudies.com, and Gifted for Leadership. It's great to have you. Who is joining us? Yeah, I'm so excited about this. John Fia is professor of American history and chair of the history department at Messiah College. He's written multiple books on American history, including Was America Founded as a Christian Nation? A Historical Introduction. He blogs at thewayofimprovement.com about the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. We are so thankful to have you here today. Yeah, I'm excited to be here too. It's good to talk with you again, Morgan, and nice to meet you, Amy. Looking forward to it. Dr. Fia, do you think we should give people full disclosure about our relationship? Sure, why not? So Pr- I'm proud of I'm proud <laughs> of the relationship. I don't know if you are. <laughs> For everyone listening, just so you know, Dr. Fia was actually one of my professors in college and he taught me in my freshman year, I believe. That's right. And much to his disappointment, he did not make me a history major. I desperately tried. If I could go back for a second degree, I swear I'd go back and study history. I love history. I remember I remember cornering you in the hallway. <laughs> Come on, Morgan. I know you haven't declared yet. Right? <laughs> I know, but politics was so similar, too. Oh, mm. Both of them are like my loves. Let's, get in, let's got it, get it, not get into that now. <laughs> Fair enough. I, my only thing, the only thing I'm disappointed about the way your career has gone so far. Uh, <laughs> but you've done well for yourself, Morgan. I would encourage you to bring this honesty to the conversation we're going to have on the podcast. Let's just dive into the conversation right now. Now, um, as I mentioned earlier today, we were really interested in talking about does character matter for our elected officials? And part of the reason that we're going to be talking about this is because Wayne Grudem, who is a very well-renowned theologian and ethicist, authored a piece for Town Hall last week called Why Voting for Donald Trump is a Morally Good Choice. And so anyone can read the whole piece on Town Hall. We'll have it linked to the podcast page as well if you'd like to read that. Um, But in particular, it's just interesting to see how Grudem deals with Trump's character as he's trying to make the case for Christians to go ahead and vote for him. So I'm going to read a couple parts of this actual essay. So in the beginning of the piece, Grudem talks about Trump. He says he is egotistical, bombastic, and brash. He often lacks nuance in his statements. Sometimes he blurts out mistaking on ideas, such as bombing the families of terrorists that he must later abandon. He insults people. He can be vindictive when people attack him. He has been slow to disown and rebuke the wrongful words and actions of some angry French supporters. 
He has been married three times and claims to have been unfaithful in his marriages. These are certainly flaws, but I don't think they are disqualifying flaws in this election. If we we go down a little bit further, he has a part that says, but the main reason I call him a good candidate with flaws is I think most of his policies he supports are those that will do the most good for the nation. And then later on in the essay, um, Grudem writes a whole section that's actually labeled Does Character Matter? And it's he writes underneath there, but are you saying that character doesn't matter? Someone might ask. I believe that character does matter, but I think Trump's character is far better than what is portrayed by much political mudslinging and far better than his opponent's character, which is a good reminder, um, just kind of brought in this conversation out this point, that when we're asking this question, does character matter? That's actually been a key reason why many folks have said that they are not able to support Hillary Clinton. One particular way that many Republicans have attacked her character most recently has been in regards to the email scandal. And as many of our listeners know, when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State under Obama's first term, Clinton set up her own email under her own server, and that was not of the federal government's. Because of the information being classified that was on these emails, um, there's been all this type of investigations that have gone into it. So actually, the FBI investigated it. Um, the State Department office released a big report on it. Um, and the State Department recently said they were going to be opening a probe into the email controversy. So anyway, we that just kind of gives a context of the fact that there's been character issues from both candidates. But I'm wondering for the gut check, if we can think about this idea of does character matter? And I would love to have both of you kind of give me your initial 140 character thoughts on that, starting with you, Dr. Fia. Well, if character does not matter in presidential politics or any politics, it is a major departure from the way American history has developed since the time of the American Revolution. What do you think, Amy? I have to say some of these things just kind of have shocked me because I feel like we are constantly looking at our leaders and and trying to figure out what their character is like and can we trust them and are they um, able to lead us with integrity and um, to kind of put that aside and say no the you know the goals actually outweigh how we get there is a little shocking and surprising to me i will say that when i when i hear that question does character matter i almost always say yes and then i immediately start thinking of exceptions in my mind where i wonder if i would be willing to answer that question no. And then I wonder if it's a loaded question trying to get me, you know, <laughs> is it a manipulative question that's just trying to get me to change my mind on something? Um, so I, I guess, yeah, I, I find the question very interesting to think about um, and to ponder. Before we dive into the deeper part of our conversation, I just want to point out that this podcast, Quick to Listen, is made possible by subscribers of Christianity Today magazine. We here at Christianity Today offer redemptive and honest coverage of the people and events and ideas that shape the church and its culture. And so for $10 a year, if you you can become a subscriber and for that you will get 10 award-winning print issues, the tablet and PDF editions of each issue. You'll get full web access to christianitytoday.com which dates back to 1956. And so if you're wondering how evangelicals felt on matters back then, search our archives if you're a subscriber. <laughs> so we offer that, as I said earlier, for $10 a year. And that's possible by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. So it's orderct.com slash quick to listen. And by subscribing to CT Magazine, you will be supporting thoughtful and essential journalism and also helping to make more episodes of quick to listen possible every week. Let's get back to the discussion. 
one way that I wanted to start this conversation was just by asking both of you, when people say character, how do you define that? Well, what is character is a, is you know a huge question. There's books and books and books and books written on it. Um, you know, one caveat I think as Christians think about the meaning of character, and I often tell this from uh, to my own students at a Christian college. Uh, there are really, as a student of history, you have to see that there are really no villains or no heroes uh, in history. Now, a lot of people might bristle at that idea. Uh, so I often have to clarify it. But usually what I mean when I say there are no villains and there are no heroes, uh, there are no villains in the sense that all human beings in the eyes of God have a certain degree of dignity and worth because they're created in his image. People do certainly do uh, villainous acts. They do things that are not defined by what we might call moral character. But ultimately, in the eyes of God, they have dignity. And then there are no heroes because we're all sinners. Uh, Genesis 3, I think, teaches us that. Uh, again, people will do heroic acts. People will do good things in the world. I'm not saying we can't do good things in the world. We see that all the time. But when we talk about character, we have to remember uh, that, especially since character is a often considered a positive moral trait, then we also need to remember that uh, no one is perfect. So what is character? I mean, we could define character in a sort of spiritual or Christian or godly way. You know, a, a person of character follows the teachings of uh, the Word of God. They follow, whether it be the Sermon on the Mount or the Fruits of the Spirit, the Beatitudes. Uh, you know, they exercise love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and so forth. Uh, they have the marks of the Holy Spirit in their life. But I think when we're talking about the character of politicians, especially American politicians, um, I'm not sure if those uh, those godly definitions of what character is really um, help us very much when we think about a very, very diverse uh, non-Christian, if you will, or at least, you know, non-Christian as far as the Constitution is concerned, uh, society. So, you know, there are things like natural law, you know, or, or the moral sense that everybody has. Jefferson liked to talk about that. Catholics like to talk about the natural law or the conscience or my Calvinist friends like to talk about, you know, common grace. And, and I think these things, these doctrines suggest that even though we are sinners, there are there is a possibility to do good uh, in the world. So when we think about the character of politicians, I think we're drawing from uh, sort of these kind of general principles that draw that are drawn from, you know, the God instilled natural law, the moral sense, the conscience in our hearts, things like courage in the face of difficulty and trial, which for much of American history was very much a sort of masculine virtue for good or for bad, uh, you know, sort of resolution, you know, the firm decision to act and to solve a problem is a mark of character. You know, a certain degree of prudence and moderation, discretion, uh, not rushing into things without all the facts, avoidance of extreme solutions to very difficult, complex, nuanced problems. You know, the Greeks, the Romans, the American founders all believe these were important virtues, dedication, community, a sense of seeing yourself uh, and your involvement in politics in a way that's larger than yourself. And, you know, if you read a lot of the Greeks, the Romans, even even Christian theologians, founding fathers, there's a compatibility here. Uh, they really also stress probably more than all those other things I just mentioned, uh, the idea of self-control. Moral restraint was the word that James Davison Hunter used in his great book on character that he wrote back in 2004. Uh, controlling one's passions. 
uh, which can often lead in sort of wrong directions, not only for the good of the country, but for the good of uh, society as a whole. So I think these kind of more broadly, things like courage, resolution, moderation, dedication, self-control, community, um, these are the kind of things I think that we often think about when we think about character in American political life and when we judge our candidates. And they really are rooted into the sort of Republican ideals uh, that this nation was founded upon. And in some ways, I think they can be compatible uh, with Christian faith, even though their source may not always be from Scripture or something to that effect. And even in some ways, what kind of leader we're talking about, we have maybe some different expectations about what character might mean. Um, you know, I love that you really put out there the difference between character and perfection. I think especially as we research and learn more about millennials, we're looking for more of that authentic, even even saying my weaknesses. So it's someone that's more that can be trusted as, as actually the value, even if there's not perfection. On the other hand, we know we still really depend on our pastors and expect them to be perfect, even in unrealistic ways. And so when they fall, we see the waterfall effect all throughout the congregation and through our whole country and even through the world sometimes when a leader falls. There's also what, what one political scientist, the Harvard political scientist, Dennis Thompson, has a nice essay on this where he talked about constitutional character, right? We expect our president, we expect our politicians to be sensitive to basic constitutional rights. I think that's a mark of character, whether they be freedom of speech or freedom of religion accept responsibility, right? Uh, ask for forgiveness, admit when one is wrong. I think these are marks of character. Tolerate opposition, you know, is one that Thompson mentions. Learn how to empathize with people who are different, not necessarily agree with opposing views, but empathize. And then, you know, I think a big one is, you know, we want our leaders to have a certain degree of candor, right? Uh, be truth tellers, uh, you know, not to lie to the American people. And I think uh, we probably see a little bit of this or a lot of this maybe um, with both of our major political candidates in this election. So one thing that I think would be really helpful for our listeners right now, as far as the historical perspective, is just seeing how Christians have in the past evaluated politicians based on their character. Can you give a sense of the extent to which they did that? Sure. I mean, there's all, you know, there's no definitive answer to that. I mean, the way Christians respond to different candidates, presidential candidates, at least, has uh, has been different in various points. So, you know, th I thinking back all the way back to, you know, election of 1800, when most sort of middling, middle sort, middle class kind of Christians said they couldn't f vote for Thomas Jefferson because he did not believe in uh, certain Christian doctrines, right? So there's they based character on Jefferson's sort of Christian identity, or, or you know, I'm thinking of many Protestants, especially evangelical Protestants, uh, who judged character also based on a religion in a different way. You know, in 1928 and 1960, you had two Catholic candidates. And their character was based on, you know, whether or not they, as Catholics, they could be good democratic citizens. Or, you know, I'm thinking of the people in the 1860s, uh, 1860, you know, Christians, at least in the North, voted for um, Abraham Lincoln because he was a man of character who thought that slavery was a moral evil. Or even 1992, Bill Clinton and his various affairs with women or reported affairs with women. 
uh, you know, led many evangelical leaders, many of them who are still sort of making the case that we should vote for Trump despite his character. You know, many of these evangelical Christians uh, said we can't support Bill Clinton simply because of his indiscretions, both before he came into office and then, of course, in 1998 when he was in office. So Christians have taken various approaches to how they look at the character of their of their candidates. But I think generally, uh, you know, most of the times Christians have sort of looked at these very kind of Republican characteristic, those things I mentioned very early on. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. I'm fascinated. Um, I was reading a little bit earlier about John F. Kennedy and and some of his his things that kind of happened and some of his relationships that he had while in office and how much the news really actually um, kind of hid those things for him. And so a lot of those those character traits didn't become known until way afterward, which is also kind of a fascinating thing because at the time, you know, that's 60s. That's not so long ago. Um, but today it seems like everything is front page, um, every minute detail of their lives. I, I'm curious for you as a historian, do you have any anything to speak into that? Or- sure. You know, we, we, we as historians sort of make our living in talking about sort of these changes that happen over time. And I think the rise of, uh, you know, especially cable news, um, social media now, especially, I mean, has really changed the entire character debate. Um, you know, and what's important, what becomes important now, the you know, would would uh, Christians or evangelical Christians have voted for Kennedy in 1960 if they knew about the various indiscretions and so forth? Maybe it's hard to tell. Most of them most of them didn't vote for Kennedy because he was a Catholic. But, you know, I would guess that these would be issues uh, for them in 1960, much like they are for many evangelical Christians, or I should say in this election, most or some evangelical Christians, you know, in 1960. But yeah, certainly the the character issue, at least the conversation about the character issue uh, of our presidential candidates changes in significant ways with the rise of all of these outside factors related to media, technology, uh, and the press. Absolutely. So one thing that I want to steer the conversation into is about supporters of of candidates who we may feel have questionable character. And the example that I'm thinking of right now is um, the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan's decision to endorse Donald Trump and the extent to which he's trying to walk this line or it appears that he's trying to walk this line of endorsing him, but not condoning everything that Donald Trump is trying to do and, and in some way separate that. And at the same time, I read a couple of pieces earlier this week that really questioned whether or not it was possible for leaders to to be able to say like, well, I'm going to keep my character. I'm still a good guy. And this person may have their qualms. Um, but, but I'm wondering if there's some sort of that guilt by association that ends up creeping in or that um, it does say something about the person who's backing them of their character um, when they've decided that they're going to endorse and campaign for and advocate for someone else. 
Yeah, I mean, you could make, you know, the question of whether or not one should support this or that candidate based on character is going to, I think, vary from person to person. So, you know, to give kind of Wayne Grudem credit, whether you agree or disagree with him, to give him credit, you know, he is at least trying to make some kind of moral case for why Trump is okay. And it's it's a much more of a kind of Supreme Court, right, uh, abortion same-sex marriage, religious liberty, you know, if we can control the Supreme Court, you know, we'll kind of hold our nose and vote for Trump. At least to his credit, he has a sort of moral end, right, in mind. Um, but I think in the in the case of Ryan, maybe, and I don't know Ryan, but I think in the case of Ryan and, and some in the GOP, who I think really sort of uh, have serious character moral issues, you know, they see they see Trump as a deeply flawed candidate that they really don't want to support, but they do because of party loyalty. That becomes an interesting ethical question, right? I mean, at what point does party loyalty trump your sort of, if you will, trump, right, <laughs> your sort of deepest moral convictions? You know, I mean, what t- Ted Cruz, what he did at the GOP convention when he refused to endorse Donald Trump. Now, some of you know my writing. I'm not a fan of Ted Cruz. However, I think what Cruz did exemplified some degree of character because he put his deepest convictions over party loyalty. This is why the founding fathers, especially George Washington, was very, very concerned about the rise of political parties because individuals will sacrifice their commitment to the common good, their commitment to sort of moral conviction and character for party loyalty. Now, again, loyalty, I think, is a very good virtue, but it can also be a very dangerous one. In so many ways, so many people in this situation feel like we've been put into an impossible political situation. It almost ends up being, okay, what are the best and highest goals? And maybe even if we have to compromise a little bit on the methods to get there, you know, I'm going to go after the path that I think I can get the best goal. And I think there's some ethical questions there. You know, what? when is it okay to have maybe less than moral methods to, in order to reach a really high goal? And when do we have to maybe rearrange our goal or re-examine our goals in light of what the options are ahead of us. It, it also seems that if you are trying to support someone, I think of this even from like a non-political standpoint, but in general, if you are someone who does take your own morality or sense of ethics very seriously, but you also want to support someone at the same time that may not share your own or may not even hold that sense of morality or have ethics themselves to some extent, you run the risk of really warping your own because of the fact that that person has some sort of sway or pull or power in how they're dictating the relationship. And so you're not being only led by your sense of morality now. You're being led by someone else and kind of interjecting like that that third party. Mm. Uh, I think the pushback on that to some extent may be that like perhaps all of our morality is influenced like that, where we don't just have this abstract set of like conscience that we listen to all the time, but it's constantly being influenced by events and circumstances and people. And we may have less of like this moral compass that we follow than we actually would want to. Yeah. I mean, there's this whole this whole question that, you know, Amy brings up about uh, when the end justifies the means, I think is is an important one that I think Christians need to wrestle with seriously and not just in some kind of simplistic manner. You know, the, the argument that's being made that we should be voting uh, regardless of the character issues in certain candidates, uh, which I think most of us would admit as Christians that there are flaws in both candidates. You know, I think the argument that one should then vote, sort of hold our noses and vote 
despite the character problems, because they vote for that candidate anyway, because there are larger moral questions to be considered. Uh, I think, you know, we need to really think hard and deep about that decision. There is a great piece out today at the blog Mere Orthodoxy by a young evangelical millennial, I guess he is, writer named Jake Meter, I think is how you pronounce his name, where he's arguing in this satirical piece that based on, on say, Wayne Grudem's logic or Eric Metaxas's logic or another evangelical spokesperson who is supporting Trump, based on that logic, why aren't evangelical Christians in Louisiana flocking to vote for the former grand wizard of the KKK, David Duke, who happens to be running for senator, because despite his denial of the Holocaust and his involvement in this kind of hate, when he gets to Congress, he's going to uh, vote for conservative uh, Supreme Court justices who are going to defend traditional marriage, pro-life issues and religious freedom. You know, so at what point does that argument cease to be a legitimate argument. I don't know. Maybe some would say, you know, you even swallow your nose on someone like David Duke in order to get these larger moral, this larger moral control of the Supreme Court. But then you need to wrestle with the fact that in a four year span, you know, is it possible or even beyond that with Supreme Court having lifetime appointees is uh, change to some of these things really possible? Uh, you get you get into debates about them, what the role of Christians are in society when they are not a majority. Uh, these are tough tough questions that need a lot of thinking. I do feel like in this time, in this place, we're kind of, again, faced with that in some ways seemingly impossible decision. And um, I feel like when there is always a time, especially even as we look back in our history of our country, when we are in dire straits, sometimes people feel like, you know, when we have to just get stuff done, character maybe is okay to take a backseat because we just need to get some stuff done. (laughs) Um, And I can certainly understand that that point of view. Um, I know I was reading recently, Richard Reeves um, wrote about President Kennedy, a great biography on that. And and he was talking about, you know, we didn't know all of the things that were going on with him. And he was able to actually bring out the best character in other people. And so there is so, so much to be said about what he did um, that was good for the country. And yet knowing afterward, after the fact, all of the all of the problems, all of the issues, the same could be said for FDR and, and I'm sure many, many other <laughs> leaders in our country. And so I can understand that point of like, well, we're in a position where we might just need to get out of this hole or get out of this murky water. And maybe someone, you know, who maybe isn't the best character, or maybe we can let a few things slide so that we can get something done. Yeah, I think a lot of this too has to do with what your position is on the role of government, you know, and what what the what your you know a lot of Christians differ on the role of government. Uh, I was on NPR debating Robert Jeffress, the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Dallas, this big megachurch who was a who was one of the first evangelicals to come out in support of Trump. And Jeffress makes an argument that the responsibility of government is you know to protect people against outside attacks, to protect the citizens, to keep keep peace. In other words, and other than that, you know, it has no real. We we shouldn't measure the role of government on based on the character of our leaders because government has a very, very limited purpose. And, and throughout Christian history, there's a lot of people who've taken that position, including Martin Luther to some extent. Uh, but if you believe that government does have a purpose as an ordained institution by God, I'm thinking here like people like the Catholic theologian Aquinas or John Calvin or Karl Barth or Catholic social teaching and others, people like Ron Sider and other evangelicals as well. If you believe that government has the 
the responsibility to promote the common good and the general welfare, the moral good, if you will, of a society, and is ordained by God to do that, then for me, I would want somebody who has character and is interested in those questions, at least, running that government. Yeah, I think that you make a great point about how ultimately when we pick our leaders, it depends on what we're hoping that they will actually do kind of like not do maybe policy wise, but do from sort of like a larger ideological theme going back to like, what is the role of government itself? And if that person, regardless of kind of maybe their moral failings, if that actually precludes them, or that's some sort of like barrier to entry to keep them from that. One, One thing I just want to note is that to some extent, one difficulty that we have when talking about some of this stuff is that there's not a good, solid, strong, shared moral framework of language that we have to talk about, quote unquote, sin, maybe, or sin in the public sphere. And so we can't always exactly name what these different things that offend us. We know they offend us. They know, we know they're troublesome, but we don't have any good way to kind of rank them or to say one is worse than the other. Um, and so there's almost kind of advocacy groups that will say that this was really bad or this was really bad or this is really bad, but we're unable to really give moral clarity on people, on humans, on our, on our on the candidates, if you will, um, in a way that actually allows us to make sense of things and also to kind of be able to draw better lines between like a type of person that says this might be able to do some, might be capable of something like this. That's also a difficult thing where I, I see a lot of people trying to make those ties and generalizations, but I don't think they necessarily do so um, out of some like larger ethical framework. Yeah, if men were angels, the Federalist paper said, you know, government wouldn't be necessary. So that concept of sin, or at least the brokenness uh, of creation, you know, we see through a glass dimly right now, it should it should breed a certain degree of humility in us. But that sort of brokenness of creation is why we have politics and why government is necessary and why in some ways politics, at least I would say, is a sort of corrupt sphere. Thank you so much for chiming in for this discussion with us, Dr. Fia. It was great to have you. I really want to just encourage our audience to chime in on this. You can leave us feedback on our social media channels. We are on Twitter at CT Podcasts. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash CT Podcasts. And before we head to Precious Moments, which is the time of the show where everyone shares something that's making them happy, we're actually (laughs) going to do a short segment, which I am tentatively calling slow to speak, but that's essentially where I'm just going to be taking and reading a couple of the user comments that we had. So last week, for those of you who did not listen, we talked about why evangelicals have historically had this strong dislike um, slash hostility towards Hillary Clinton. So I just got an email last week from a listener named Ken Sheldon. And so I was just going to read an excerpt of his email. And Ken, we're so thankful that you emailed us. So thank you for chiming in. Ken writes that while you did address a couple of substantive issues, such as abortion and Supreme Court justices, there's a long list of reasons, both political and personal, that others like me oppose her. To begin with, Hillary essentially took office with her husband, a role she was never elected to, even though Bill warned us that we were getting two for the price of one. She was given the charge of developing a national health care plan, a process that she shrouded in secrecy and ultimately led to its failure. For years, Hillary has protected her husband from the consequences of his philandering. Bill Clinton was inflicted on the country in part because Hillary stood by him during the Jennifer Flowers scandal before his election. And I think evangelicals can be forgiven if they suspect Hillary's forgiveness of her husband over the Lewinsky scandal had more in part to do with the deal made between him and her personal ambitions than their private lives. 
And she goes on to talk about other different things regarding other scandals. There may be more smoke than fire. But again, I think we can be forgiven where there's there is much smoke. Perhaps this is all generated by anti-Hillary animus. But I wonder as much of progressives hated George W. Bush, made fun of him and blamed him for everything short of the eventual demise of our solar system. I don't recall scandals that point to the basic flaw of his character. So it's interesting that this email kind of brings us back to what we Mm. talked about today. Ken, thank you for bringing some of that stuff up. And we invite you all to get in touch with us. We are now going to switch to Precious Moments. This week, I wanted to have everyone for their thing that's making them happy share something about the Olympics in particular that they're excited for. So, Dr. Fia, would you just be willing to start that? Sure. We love the Olympics in our family. We've been watching it as a family ever since my little kids were my kids were young. Uh, and it's become a real tradition, especially the Summer Olympics. My daughter, uh, Allison, is heading to college. She's starting Calvin College uh, in a couple of weeks, our first daughter. So we are really looking forward to sort of that last week and a half, two weeks, uh, just kind of being together and watching in the Olympics. Where can people find you online? Yeah, I blog every single day uh, at www.wayofimprovement.com. And I tweet at John Fia, J-O-H-N-F-E-A-1. Thank you so much, Amy. Yeah, I am super pumped about the Olympics. I actually, um, as a young young girl, I was a gymnast and never at any level of the Olympics. But um, it was always a wonderful time with my family to sit and watch, especially the gymnastics part of the Olympics. And as this is the 20th, I can't even believe that, 20th anniversary of the Atlanta Olympics with Carrie Strug and her amazing vault, I'm just more than excited to watch this week. Week, especially as we get started with the opening ceremonies. And I am on Twitter at Amy K. Jackson. So as far as the Olympics, I would say you were talking about watching it with your family. I miss watching it with my family for sure, though. I imagine texting multiple people in my family as it goes on. Oh, well, aren't you from California? You always had to wait for like you weren't allowed oh, to watch. You're right. You weren't allowed to watch the news because you didn't want to know who won. Right? Can we just be yeah. honest and say the Olympics were better before the internet? Like, Ugh. I think all of sports are better. Amen. I think sports in general are funner <laughs> because of the internet, but except for the Olympics when you have to watch it late. Totally. But my favorite part of the Olympics is literally they just, so I've had to write an article about different Olympians for CT. It'll come out tomorrow i think and it's really just been incredible to read everybody's stories there's so many people that overcome severe amounts of adversity i just wrote about someone i think he was either in archery or he was a shooter and he spent a year of his life as a child um in leg braces Mm. you know like i don't even know people in general that are spending their life in leg braces or the stories of the refugee olympians are obviously incredibly heroic um one of the most amazing ones that they have a bunch of stories on today is a woman who literally got out of her boat last year when they were being smuggled from turkey to greece and swam pulled the boat for three hours long to get it to shore oh my goodness um and so anyway all those types of stories are incredible and i really just look forward to feeling inspired and challenged by these olympians so that is it for us this week amy i'm so glad that you could come on and guest host with me thank you so much for being here thank you obviously dr fee is always great to talk to you thanks for having me on we are appreciative for everyone who made it possible for another episode of quick to listen the show is produced by Richard Clark and Cray Alred. Special thanks to Kate Shellnut. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes and SoundCloud, Stitcher, um, Google Play. We're all there. If you like the show, make sure to rate and review us on iTunes, and that helps out a lot. We will see you all next week.
Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.